We're in Moscow, and the year is 1998. The Soviet Union is no more, and the 90s have not been kind to the new Russian Federation, which is reeling from a financial crisis, corruption, crime, and a sense of hopelessness. In the minds of many, this flirtation with capitalism doesn't seem to be working. Distaste for this capitalist experiment clashes with Soviet mosaics and Lenin's disapproving scowl carved in stone, driving a longing for a return to some glorious past. Not all specters from Soviet times show such rosy glimmers. Some lay dormant, hiding terrible memories, waiting to be discovered like a bitter secret. There is a work crew at the Tunisian embassy not far from the Kremlin. Their job is to replace some water pipes in the embassy garden. Should be a fairly routine job, but there's a problem. The excavator stops digging and the crew gather around a shallow hole. Resting at the bottom are several human skeletons. Could these be some ancient victims of Ivan the Terrible? No. They appear much more recent. Perhaps victims of the Tsar's secret police. Not likely. What about the Cheka or the NKVD? Now we're getting warmer. But these aren't the remains of political prisoners. These skeletons don't appear to have been buried with clothes on, which is not impossible. Political prisoners have been stripped naked and shot before. But this is a garden in an embassy. Has it always been an embassy? No. This is the former residence of the last NKVD chief, Lavrenti Beria, who, in addition to being a brutal careerist, was a raging sexual predator. These skeletons, as it turns out, are the remains of five women who were either brutalized or rejected Beria's advances. Whatever the case, the ground was their destiny. So there I was. I had just finished publishing episode three about the Cheka. I had a brief sense of accomplishment, patted myself on the back, consumed alcohol, and briefly contemplated therapy for continuing to engross myself in this topic of secret police. But I don't have time for therapy, so I opened a new Google Doc instead. Originally, the NKVD episode was supposed to be a singleton, but it quickly became apparent I needed to split it into two because, one, if I didn't, the episode would have been four hours long, and two, the man Lavrenti Beria was such a vile piece of shit that he warranted special attention. Not to mention the NKVD as an institution wore a lot of hats. They fought alongside the Red Army in battles on the Eastern Front against the Germans, and they helped the Soviet Union become a nuclear power. They also reorganized and rebranded a couple times between 1940 and 1946. At the end of the day, they were a vast extension of Stalin's power, wielded through his lapdog, Beria. Consider this your content warning. This is a show about secret police, and if you've been following up until now, you know we discussed some pretty gruesome stuff. But this is the first time we will be talking about the leader of a secret police institution who also happened to be a child predator. This is the sort of stuff that would upset any sane human being, and the writing of this episode took on a new meaning for me personally because I recently sat on a jury for a case involving sexual assault against a minor. So child predation by a person of considerable power is a particularly nauseating thing to chew on. 
but there will be a lot of history as per usual, and we will be all over the place, geographically speaking, bouncing across the span of Russia from Europe to Asia. And we'll meet some interesting characters who unfortunately chose to lend their services to a regime bent on spreading communist revolution. Just one housekeeping thing, and we'll be on our way. Uh, please rate the show and give it a review. I'd greatly appreciate it. It helps me, and it helps the show grow and reach more history people. It also pleases the algorithm gods, and I like to know how my audience feels about things. Uh, Spotify users uh, can, as of recently, uh, leave a rating. Five out of five would make me happy and would be appreciated. Those of you coming from the Eastern Border podcast or the Steam Gentleman podcast, welcome. Glad to have you along on this ride, and thank you for lending me your ears. If, for some reason, you haven't heard either the Eastern Border or the Steam Gentleman, please check them out. They're great. Now, let's get into it. In this fifth episode of our Russia series, we are going to explore the life and leadership of Lavrenti Beria, the third and final NKVD chief. We will also explore the NKVD's operations during the Winter War and the Great Patriotic War, otherwise known as World War II. Finally, we will see how the political police adapted to a new Soviet era following Stalin's death and entered into a Cold War with the United States. Why was Lavrenti Beria one of history's most vile characters? Who were some of the NKVD's most notable spies? What finally brought down Beria? You're listening to the Secret Police Podcast. Do you have a problem with authority? Because I do. And I'm on a mission to help us build a healthy skepticism towards those in power. My name is Jack, and I spend hours researching and engaging with my morbid curiosity of dictatorships and share with you the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. We look at how secret police enforce tyranny and strike fear in their people. Let's recap. After Lenin's death in 1924, there was a considerable amount of uncertainty about who exactly would succeed the old Bolshevik. Bukharin? Trotsky? Nobody expected Joseph Stalin to take the reins of power. But he did so with shrewd and cunning political maneuvering. In fact, he was well positioned to create a dictatorship as party general secretary. Stalin established himself as Lenin's successor and began to remove his rivals in the Communist Party, starting with Lenin's closest associates like Zinoviev and Kamenev. At first, removal meant dismissal from party duties, but gradually Stalin sought to legally allow for the execution of party members who confessed to allegations of crimes against the USSR, even if the confessions were false and extracted through torture. For example, when the popular Politburo member Sergei Kirov was mysteriously assassinated, which was likely a plot carried out by the NKVD, Stalin used this as an opportunity to link Zinoviev and Kamenev to the plot. They were both sent to prison and eventually executed. Conveniently for Stalin, Kirov was also a rival. Stalin followed with a purge of both the party and the Red Army, where party members and many, if not most, Red Army officers were imprisoned, exiled, or shot. 
even some people who never went against Stalin's will were purged. Stalin wanted the Soviet Union to rapidly industrialize at any economic or human cost. He enacted five-year plans to collectivize farmlands and crop production, as well as build factories in urban centers. Meanwhile, the secret police underwent changes in a transition away from Lenin's regime to Stalin's. The Cheka had since been abolished, and in the latter part of Lenin's rule, the GPU and then the OGPU took over state security duties performed by the Cheka. The OGPU in particular served as the Soviet Union's main political policing strong arm until they were reorganized into the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, or the NKVD, in 1934. The NKVD was every dictator's wet dream of a secret police force. They maintained a massive spy network within the Soviet Union and abroad, provided military aid to Spain during their civil war, administered the gulags, enforced collectivization at gunpoint, protected Stalin, and much more. Notably, the NKVD flexed its wide reach in their successful assassination of Leon Trotsky with an ISAC special in Mexico City. The NKVD's ruthless leaders were first Genrik Yagoda, who would later be purged during Stalin's terror and replaced by the bloody dwarf Nikolai Yezhov. Yezhov dialed the purge all the way up to 11, perhaps sealing his own fate because Yezhov also fell out of favor with Stalin and disappeared, likely executed. Yezhov's replacement was the third and final NKVD chief Lavrenti Beria. That takes us to where we left off, at Beria's appointment as head of the NKVD in 1938. We have to get to know this monster, a fellow Georgian like his idol Stalin, and a once-in-a-century psychopath who didn't shy away from literally getting his hands dirty during interrogations and tortures. But he had the added dimension of also being a pedophile. Of all the people we have talked about in the show, I find Beria to top the charts in being a pile of garbage. Let's revisit Georgia in Imperial Russia and trace Beria's life and career. I'm sorry, do you still possess a working brain? You dumb animal, I am the security forces. I had never heard of Beria before watching Armando Iannucci's film The Death of Stalin. Of course, I knew who Stalin was, but Beria caught my attention for how disgusting he was portrayed in the film, and upon further research, discovered he really was a vile human being, or whatever kind of creature he really was. If I may put this in American terms, Beria running the NKVD was like if a government agency equivalent to the FBI, NSA, CIA, and U.S. Marshals combined was run by a murderer-rapist pedophile. That's a terrifying prospect, and that happened in the Soviet Union, with Beria's appointment to one of the most formidable secret police organizations of the 20th century. And in the Soviet Union, it was difficult to untangle the chief from the institution itself. The two were often indistinguishable. But who was Beria? Where did he come from? And did Beria give even Stalin the creeps? Lavrenti Pavlovich Beria was born on March 17, 1899 in Merkuli in Georgia, part of the Russian Empire at the time. It's a pretty small village as of 
2011, which I, I know that's some dated uh, history there, the population of Makuli was only a little over 800. You might see some sources note Beria's birthday being March 29th and born in Sukumi. So we at least know that he was born in March 1899. And Sukumi is only about 8 miles or 13-ish kilometers from Merkuli. Merkuli was formed not long before Beria's birth, having been founded in 1879. After the Armenian Genocide, the village became a destination refuge for many Armenians fleeing persecution. Merkuli is also about 165 miles or 265 kilometers from Stalin's birthplace of Gori, or about a five-hour drive. To be honest, Makuli looks pretty nice. Looking at Google Maps, one popular destination is a shallow canyon with walkways built over a running river and mossy cliffs on either side. It looks beautiful. What's not cool is Beria. Lavrenti's father, Pavel Kakayevich Beria, was a landowner in Abkhazia, so he was fairly well off. Better off than many of the peasant class in Russia during this time. Lavrenti's mom, Marta Yakali, was a very religious woman. She had great reverence for and was active in the Georgian Orthodox Church, and she hoped to instill her strong faith into young Lavrenti. Marta had been married previously and widowed. She had another son from this previous marriage before marrying Pavel Beria. With Pavel, she would have three children, Lavrenti, his brother, and his sister, Anna. I'm not sure what the brother's name was. Information on him is more or less non-existent since Lavrenti was either not close with his brother or the brother died before they could form any bonds. Lavrenti's sister, however, was deaf, according to the source. He also seemed close with his nieces who may have depended on him for support. As a high school-aged kid, Lavrenti was given the name Detective at his school because he was very good at finding lost or stolen items. But it's also possible little Lavrenti stole people's things himself in order to pretend to have found it. Lavrenti had a sweet tooth for manipulation at a very early age. In 1917, Lavrenti went to study mathematics and science at the Baku Polytechnicum in Azerbaijan. 1917, of course, was a critical year in Russian history with the overthrow of the Tsar and then the overthrow of the provisional government, followed by the establishment of a Bolshevik Russia. In March 1917, Beria joined the Bolsheviks and became a member of the Baku City Soviet. Remember from the last episode, a Soviet is a workers' council, and in Soviet times, only members of these councils could be selected for higher office. So we see Levrenti becoming more politically active here. The nation of Georgia at this time saw an opportunity to solidify independence from Russia upon the collapse of the Russian Empire. Anti-Russian sentiment and a strong desire for independence made the Georgian people difficult to control from the perspective of the Kremlin, namely Vladimir Lenin. Georgia declared independence in May 1918, and the Social Democratic Mensheviks were the majority party. Interestingly, Russia did recognize Georgia's independence in 1920, but in a twist of events, Soviet Russia invaded their neighbor in February 1921. Joseph Stalin himself, on the orders of Lenin, led the invasion, absorbing the country as the Georgian Soviet Socialist Republic. And thank God these days, Russia basically leaves its neighbors alone. <laughs>
As we've seen in the previous two episodes, both Lennon and Stalin had hard-ons for Karl Marx. Lavrenti, however, did not share the same feelings. It's noted in multiple sources that Beria wasn't exactly a passionate communist, especially compared to Lenin. Beria joined the Bolsheviks because he had to in order to advance his career. He likely didn't give a polar bear's ass about political ideology. As Roy Medvedev, the author of Let History Judge the Origins and Consequences of Stalinism, quote, Beria had never been a Marxist or a revolutionary. Right from the start, he was an unprincipled careerist, end quote. And you'll see what I mean in a bit when we talk about Beria's experience in the Russian Civil War. Obviously, Beria's dispassion for communism did not deter Stalin from promoting him to ever higher posts in the party. Beria was loyal to Stalin, and Stalin may have found it useful to have a fellow Georgian in the inner circle. After Lavrenti graduated from the Polytechnic School, in 1919, he got a job with the security services of Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is a small country in the Caucasus that shares a border with Russia in the north, Iran in the south, Georgia and Armenia in the west, and the Caspian Sea to the east. In 1919, Azerbaijan was ruled by the Muslim Democratic Musavat Party. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. It may be Musavat, I think it might be. Uh, Beria actually supported the Musavat party during the Russian Civil War in opposition against the Red Army. In my opinion, this demonstrates that Beria didn't necessarily care about party ideology. He also worked to undermine the prominent Menshevik party in Georgia from his post in Azerbaijan, doing a little international agitation there. Of course, the Red Army would be victorious in the Russian Civil War, and in 1920, Beria found himself in a pickle when the Red Army entered Azerbaijan and defeated that nation's government. He was then assigned to collect intelligence inside Georgia from the Revolutionary Military Council of the Bolshevik 11th Army. But with increased Red Army control came increased suspicion of spies who had collaborated with enemy forces, including Beria. Approximately 2,000 Musavat party members and Beria were arrested. The source notes a rumor flying around that Beria was actually supposed to be executed on charges of spying, but he was spared. Instead, Beria spent time in jail, and during his stint behind bars, he formed a relationship with his cellmate's niece. Her name was Nina Gagechkori. And I couldn't figure out how they bonded in prison. I don't think she was a prisoner. Maybe the cellmate had some kind of visitation hours or, or family members were able to stand just outside the cell. I'm not sure. But Barrett was baiting for jailbait while in jail. His cellmate's niece was 17 at the time, and Barrett was 21. They're starting to get some inklings of who this guy really was. I guess things worked out because Lavrenti and Nina would later elope on a train. But she didn't know at the time that Beria's thing for 17-year-olds, you know, would stick around. Beria was arrested again along with some of his Bolshevik comrades for spying on the ruling party of Georgia, the Mensheviks. This was before the Soviets invaded Georgia, so the Mensheviks were still in power. As punishment, Beria was supposed to be exiled, and he was ordered to leave Georgia within three days, but Beria pulled a little sneaky sneaky and stayed in the country, 
living under a false identity and working for the Soviet embassy. His undercover lifestyle could only last so long. Eventually, the Georgian authorities caught up to Beria, arrested and deported him back to Baku in Azerbaijan. I know this is a bit confusing because he keeps playing musical countries, so at this point in 1920 or 1921, he returned to Azerbaijan. Sorry for not being too clear on the dates. The sources aren't clear on the dates either, so I had to kind of piece together parts of his life chronologically as best I could. Beria tried to get back into academia a couple times, but lost interest. Each time, he wound up returning to work for the Bolshevik party. He took a role as Administrator of Affairs for the Azerbaijan Central Committee. Following that role, Beria was appointed to a role of Secretary on a committee tasked with diminishing the wealth of the bourgeoisie and improving the lives of the workers. This sounds like, you know, your friendly neighborhood bureaucrat coming to redistribute the wealth, but please, this is Beria we're talking about. He didn't just redistribute wealth. He oversaw the confiscation of private property on behalf of the ruling Bolshevik party. The party controlled the assets, and the workers got dick. In February 1921, Beria was promoted to deputy head of the regional leadership of the Cheka, the Bolshevik secret police. This was a great career move for Beria, but a terrible move for the Soviet people's self-preservation. He also married Nina in 1921, a big year for him. Apparently, they were married in secret. So when Beria's later atrocities came to light, rumors surfaced that Nina was forced to marry against her will. But we'll get to that. Meanwhile in Moscow, the fate of the Caucasus was being tossed around amongst Soviet leadership. Would Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan become semi-independent or be absorbed into the Soviet Union? Lenin's health was also failing him having suffered several strokes, so his ability to lead was severely diminished. Stalin, of course, would rise to power and seek to absorb his homeland into the Soviet Union. Go check out part four for more details if you haven't already. Georgia wasn't just going to roll over and be absorbed. In November 1922, Beria and Nina moved back to Georgia and settled in the capital of Tiflis, now Tbilisi. The environment they landed in was one of resurgent anti-Bolshevik sentiment. Beria positioned himself to assist the Bolsheviks in ruthlessly squashing Georgian revolt by arresting and executing counter-revolutionary forces. The Menshevik party received little trouble from Lenin's government due to many of them being old colleagues of Lenin. But in 1922, the Soviet Union was under new management. Stalin tolerated no opposition. The only space for opposition would be in gulags or in torture chambers. Oh, and underground as well. Opposition included Mensheviks, like I mentioned, Turkish nationalists, and Muslim counter-revolutionaries. The Cheka was having trouble controlling these various uprisings. Mass arrests only added fuel to the fire in October 1923. Arrests did little to discourage people from resisting the Bolshevik hand gradually tightening around Georgia's neck. In August 1924, rebellion led to the deaths of approximately 10,000 people and young Czechist Beria got a taste for authority and control. He did this by ordering the execution of anybody suspected of subversion against the Bolsheviks. 
Beria gained a reputation as somebody who could get things done, and his reach started expanding outside of Georgia. In 1925, three anti-Stalinists were killed in a plane crash. Leader of the Transcaucasian Cheka, Solomon Mogilevsky, and two other high-ranking officials, Georgi Atarbekov and Alexander Myasnikyan, were en route to Sukumi, Georgia. When a bomb detonated midair, the cause of the crash, of course, was never determined despite three separate investigations. And I'm guessing we only know about the crash now because of open Soviet archives. Rumor was that Stalin and Beria plotted to kill Mogilevsky, but those investigations I mentioned uncovered no evidence that either Stalin or Beria were involved. And to that I say, if it was a cover-up, you know, that's kind of the point of a cover-up is that there is no evidence. Interestingly though, the three men were traveling to see Leon Trotsky, Stalin's arch-rival, possibly with damning information about both the Man of Steel and Beria. Whatever the truth, Beria used this opportunity to forge a close relationship with his Georgian counterpart. Beria would continue to cozy up to his superiors through Stalin's systematic purge of enemies including Trotsky, who Stalin didn't like for personal and ideological reasons. In 1931, Beria was appointed to the position of the Joint State Police uh, Directorate, which provided him with access to a treasure trove of information including any info that could harm him personally. But from this new position, Beria could keep tabs on any potentially damaging information, and Beria had the power to stop any investigations into his personal, questionable, and downright detestable behavior. In 1932, Beria was appointed to the position of leader of the Transcaucasian Republic. He used this position to blame former party members for Georgia's poor economic underperformance. And he used this as a reason to replace old Bolsheviks in Georgia with brand spanking new Bolsheviks. He also strengthened Georgia's policies regarding forced seizure of land and collectivization. If you've stuck with this series thus far, you know that people who defied the Bolsheviks' policies were either exiled or shot. In 1937, Beria had his own little mini-purge of the Georgian NKVD, where approximately 17 high-ranking NKVD officials were tried and executed for being part of some sort of underground anti-Bolshevik movement. Beria also focused on his goal of migrating his political career to the Kremlin. Beria got what was on his Christmas list in 1938 when Stalin appointed Beria to a deputy member of the NKVD. Stalin knew how Beria could be both effective and ruthless in achieving favorable outcomes for the Bolsheviks. It's as if when Stalin read Beria's performance reviews, his little comrade got harder than the barrel of a T-34. As one of Stalin's most trusted subordinates, Beria took part in Stalin's purges of the Communist Party and the Red Army. Curiously, Beria himself was slated to be executed and was only spared by begging to Stalin for his life. And I couldn't find the exact reason why Beria was added to the hit list. But you see, Stalin had a way with his inner circle in keeping them so on their toes all the time. Each person was left in a state of perpetual fear that at any moment Stalin could turn on any individual and have them and their family executed. It's just too bad Stalin didn't follow through and kill Beria. 
1941, Beria would be the second most powerful person in the Soviet Union, second only to Stalin himself. Beria was both the head of the police, but also deputy prime minister. He achieved a greater level of power than his two deadass predecessors from last episode, Genrik Yagoda and Nikolai Yezhov. Stalin even referred to Beria as my Heinrich Himmler, a reference to Nazi Germany's SS chief and architect of the Holocaust. What was Beria's conduct as chief of the NKVD and his conduct after dark? Beria was appointed to head of the NKVD after the ousting and death of Nikolai Yezhov. One of Beria's first orders of business was to bring in many of his own loyal underlings into the institution while also quietly eliminating Yezhov's team. Beria notably appointed many of his own countrymen to these positions, that is, other Georgians. The mass of Georgian names in the NKVD made some Russian speakers' ears perk up. These Georgians had an advantage over the remaining Russian agents in the NKVD who were previously Cheka agents. That advantage was the language barrier. If an old Czechist was to be eliminated, orders would be given in broken Russian or just Georgian, a language not many Russians understood. Beria cleaned house and made the NKVD his own, like a reflection of his own personality. But what was Beria like as a person? The best explanations I could find are quotes from other people who worked with him. Milo Van Gilos, a Yugoslavian Communist Party member, said about Beria, quote, Beria was a Georgian like Stalin, but one could not tell this at all from the looks of him. Georgians are generally bony and dark. Even in this respect, he was nondescript. He could have passed more easily for a Slav or a Latvian, but mostly for a mixture of some sort, end quote. Here are just some more descriptions of what Beria was like. Nikita Khrushchev, who would eventually himself take control of the Soviet Union, said, quote, Beria and I started to see each other frequently at Stalin's. At first, I liked him. We had friendly chats and even joked together quite a bit. But gradually, his political complexion came clearly into focus. I was shocked by his sinister two-faced scheming hypocrisy. Soon after his transfer to Moscow, the atmosphere in the collective leadership and in Stalin's inner circle took on an entirely different character from what it had been before. It changed very much for the worst." End quote. Then Khrushchev describes a trick Stalin would play to trip up his cronies. Stalin approached Khrushchev and said, quote, Before Beria arrived, dinner meetings used to be relaxed and productive affairs. Now he's always challenging people to drinking contests, and people are getting drunk all over the place." End quote. Khrushchev was smart enough to be wary when Stalin criticized people. Why? Khrushchev explains that, quote, "...even though I agreed with Stalin completely, I knew I had to watch my step in answering him. One of Stalin's favorite tricks was to provoke you into making a statement, or even agreeing with a statement, which showed your true feelings about someone else. It was perfectly clear to me that Stalin and Beria were very close, end quote. Little mind games there. Imagine if your boss did that to you. You go into a meeting in person or on Zoom and you're a bit early, but your boss is there. Hey there, Jim, he says, and you guys start shooting the shit. And then your boss says, ah, you know, Todd is causing us problems. 
Ever since he was transferred to our department, he screws up the numbers on our financial statements. It's just sloppy work. He goes on long walks in the middle of the workday and spends 15, 20 minutes in the bathroom, probably just scrolling. And he smells kind of funky monkey. And before you say, hell yeah, Todd sucks, you think about it. And you know your boss and Todd hang out. And not just at happy hour after work. Todd was at your boss's wedding. Heck, there is a photo of Todd and your boss's fishing trip in his office. So you amend your answer and say, eh, I like Todd. He's a great guy. And he's amazing with clients. So, you know, go Todd. But then your boss plays the same trick on Frank, and Frank goes on a rant about Todd. And then, one day, Frank doesn't show up to work no more. In fact, Frank's wife hasn't seen him in a couple days. Back to Beria. Eventually, NKVD chief Nikolai Yezhov came into Stalin's crosshairs and would be gradually overworked until he made a fatal mistake. British historian Robert Service, author of Stalin, a biography, stated, quote, Yezhov understood the danger he was in and his daily routine became hectic. He knew that the slightest mistake could prove fatal. Somehow, though, he had to show himself to Stalin as indispensable. Meanwhile, he also had to cope with the appointment of a new NKVD deputy commissar, the ambitious Lavrenti Beria, from July 1938. End quote. Was Beria competing for both Yezov's job and Stalin's affections? The short answer is yes. Another British historian, Simon Montefiore, explained, quote, Stalin may have wanted a Caucasian, perhaps convinced that the cutthroat traditions of the mountains, blood feuds, vendettas, and secret murders suited the position. Beria was a natural and the only first secretary who personally tortured his victims. The blackjack and the trenchant were his favorite toys. He was hated by many of the old Bolsheviks and family members around the leader. With the whispering, plotting, and vengeful Beria at his side, Stalin felt able to destroy his own polluted, intimate world, end quote. The author, Robert Service, continues by saying, quote, Beria had until then been first secretary of the Communist Party of Georgia. He was widely feared in the South Caucasus as a devious plotter against any rival, and almost certainly he had poisoned one of them, the Abkhazian communist leader Nestor Lakoba in December 1936. If Yezhov tripped, Beria was ready to take his place. Indeed, Beria would be more than happy to trip Yezhov up. Daily collaboration with Beria was like being tied in a sack with a wild beast. The strain on Yezhov became intolerable. He took to drinking heavily and turned for solace to one-night stands with women he came across. And when this failed to satiate his needs, he pushed himself upon men he encountered in the office or at home. Insofar as he was able to secure his future position, he started to gather compromising material on Stalin himself. On the 17th of November, the Politburo decided that enemies of the people had infiltrated the NKVD. Such measures spelled doom for Yezhov. He drank more heavily. He turned to more boyfriends for sexual gratification. End quote. The priorities here seem super skewed because somehow, in the Soviet system's logic, Yezhov being gay is worse than Beria being a pedophile. 
These direct quotes and historical accounts paint a remarkably consistent picture of Beria that he is brutal, hated, feared, and ambitious. Those traits he brought to the role of NKVD chief, and he got shit done. December 1938, Nikolai Yezhov was executed, leaving a large vacancy. Stalin posted the NKVD chief's job to LinkedIn, Indeed, Monster, and probably even ZipRecruiter, none of which are my sponsor, but they hired internally. It's about who you know, and Beria knew the right people. Let's talk about some of his darker characteristics. There is evidence that Beria had an appetite for sexual predation of young women and girls. This information comes from several sources, including Simon Montefiore's book titled Stalin, The Court of the Red Tsar, and Martin Sixsmith's BBC program called Russia, The Wild East. But the primary source for both are the writings from two of Beria's bodyguards, Colonel Rafael Semyonovich Sarkasov and Colonel Sardian Nikolaevich Nadaraya. Their notes were key evidence to Beria's perversions during his trial in 1953. The evidence would show Beria committed several rapes and abused his office and position of power to prey on women. Now, these allegations, whatever you want to call them, were disputed by both Nina, Beria's wife, and his son, Sergo. It's my opinion that his family disagreed with the allegations because, one, Beria was probably away from home often, at his office or in the Soviet Union somewhere, doing creepy Beria shit. So they didn't witness it, and he'd want to keep that from his wife, I presume. Two, his family loved him, so I think they viewed him in a positive light and could never imagine old Papa Beria doing anything so heinous. And three, his family wouldn't want to believe it. Easier to think your spouse or your dad is being framed than to come to terms with him being a monster. Both Colonels Sarkasov and Nardaraya reported that on warm nights, Beria would be driven around Moscow in a limo and prey on young women. He would point to one he wanted, and she'd be forced into the limo and driven to Beria's residence. The girl would be wined and dined, and then escorted to his soundproof office and raped. My god, this bastard had some kind of sex dungeon. I bet he reveled in thinking about his previous victims and the next one while he sat there and worked. After the rape was over, the woman would be shown the door, and the guards were instructed to provide her with a bouquet of flowers. The flower thing to me is the perverted cherry on top. Flowers in almost every culture that I can think of have significance. They can represent beauty, youth, fertility, purity, among other things. In Russia, there is cultural significance to them, too which I want to unpack a little bit because it contextualizes Beria's final act. According to the blog Expatriant, which is a guide for how to be an expat living abroad, there are certain customs in Russia around flowers. For example, in the US, we tend to buy bouquets containing a dozen flowers or some other even number. But in Russia, an even number of flowers is something you would get for a funeral. Rather, you'd want to give that special someone an odd number of flowers, and you can never give too many. Generally, you would not bring flowers on a first date. So when Beria gave random women flowers after raping them, he's like, just violated a woman against her will, and then here are some flowers. 
Oh, and the deadly twist was if a woman refused to submit to him or refused to take the flowers, she would be arrested and sent to a gulag or shot. If she took the flowers, it gave the appearance that the rape was actually consensual. At one point, Beria had Soviet actress Tatiana Ukunovskaya brought to his dacha where he offered to release both her father and her grandmother from gulags if she let him have his way with her. What she didn't know was her father had been shot months earlier and Beria raped her anyway. In 1948, she was arrested and put in solitary confinement in a gulag at the Steplag or Stepnoy Camp Directorate Special Camp Number 4 near a village called Kengir in central Kazakhstan, middle of nowhere. Tatiana Okunevskaya died in 2002, so not really that long ago. Before her arrest, she was in films called Hectic in 1935, and it happened in the Donbass in 1945. Tatiana was released from prison in 1954 and returned from entertainment and acted in films like The Captivating Star of Happiness in 1975 and House of the Rich in 2000. She way outlived that monster that tried to bring her down. Good on you, Tatiana, and go fuck yourself, Lavrenti Beria. Beria made Colonel Sorkasov keep a list of names of women he victimized. His creepy collection ended up being part of Beria's downfall. See, Colonel Sorkasov kept a copy of the list. So when Beria had what he thought was the only copy destroyed, the other copy was evidence of Beria's brutal sexual perversion. According to Simon Montefiore, when Stalin was ready to discredit Beria, and of course the Man of Steel saw Beria's list, and apparently said to Colonel Sorkasov, quote, send me everything this asshole writes down, end quote. Now, before we get to Beria's downfall, let's look at the NKVD's involvement during the Soviet Union's major conflicts and operations in annexed territories. Stalin's Soviet Union saw numerous threats in both the West and the Far East, and the NKVD was utilized to varying degrees in Finland, the Far East, Poland, and the Baltics. We'll look at some of these operations leading up to the Second World War, or as it's known in Russia, the Great Patriotic War. And then, of course, we'll look at the NKVD operations during World War II. In case you haven't looked at a map or have the geographic aptitude of the average American, Finland is a Nordic country that borders Russia to the east, Sweden, and the Gulf of Bothnia to the west, and Norway to the north, and separated from Estonia by the Gulf of Finland in the south. Finland's capital, Helsinki, sits on the coast of the Gulf of Finland and is home to several beautiful churches like Tapeliaukion Kirko, which I'm probably completely mispronouncing. The Finnish language, which I neither speak nor understand, as I've just demonstrated, is unique compared to their westerly Scandinavian neighbors and their fancy-schmancy Nordic-Germanic languages. No, Finnish is a part of the Finnic language group, and that group is part of the Uralic language family, a family of languages that also includes Hungarian. Within the Finnic groups is also Estonian and Karelian, and Finns love their saunas. Oh my goodness. I'd love to visit Finland one day. It looks like a forested wonderland. Finland used to be part of the Kingdom of Sweden until 1809, when the country was annexed by Russia. 
though Finland was incorporated into Russian territory, it was allowed to be semi-autonomous as the Grand Duchy of Finland. One major strategic benefit of absorbing Finland was extending Russia's border with the west away from St. Petersburg. We saw this in part three where the Bolsheviks relocated the capital city from then Petrograd, same place as St. Petersburg, to Moscow as the German lines approached Petrograd. I'm oversimplifying, but that's the gist of it. We know that Lenin hid from Tsarist authorities for a time in Finland before the revolution. Then. Finland would gain its independence from Russia in 1917 and plant a seed for future conflict with the Bolsheviks. One thing to keep in mind that I haven't touched on is that Finland was a battlefield between Russia and Sweden for centuries, so there are nuggets of territorial disputes between the two, while Finland just wants Santa to bring them some independence this Christmas. Instead, Finland had to fight for its existence. The February Revolution of 1917 provided an opportunity for Finnish independence, and the provisional government allowed for Finnish autonomy, ceding territory and governance of the country. Finland's political landscape developed in a similar direction as Russia's in that left and right-wing factions struggled for power. However, when the Bolsheviks took control of Russia, all Finnish political factions came together to ensure their independence. On December 6, 1917, the Finns officially declared independence from Russia, and other nations would gradually recognize Finnish independence through 1918 and 1919. The new Soviet government was not prepared to prevent this from happening, and the Soviets had an interest in holding Finland because, without it, the Finnish border would be close to Petrograd. Not to mention, you know, uh, silver and other mineral deposits in uh, Karelia, but uh, we're getting there. I mentioned left and right factions in Finland, and they closely represented uh, similar f uh, fissures in Russian politics. That is, the left wing were reds or communists, while the right wing were whites and aligned more with the Tsar. Finland broke out into civil war in January 1918 between the reds, supported by Soviet Russia, and the Whites backed by Sweden and Germany. The Whites had several advantages over the Reds. One, they had former officers of the Russian army. Two, German-trained rebel troops called Jaegers. And three, the Germans occupied Helsinki, which presumably hampered Red support since communists typically flourished in urban areas. And four, the Whites had the leadership of Karl Gustav Emil Mannerheim. I've heard of him. The Whites would be victorious and Finland would eventually become a presidential republic. A couple more historical context pieces and then more NKVD. There were political elements in Finland interested in retaking a historically Finnish province called Karelia that was inside Russia. Karelia, the region, is remote, forested, and frankly quite beautiful, stretching from the White Sea in the north to the Gulf of Finland. Karelia is an area of a little over 172,000 square kilometers, or 66,600 square miles. That's an area about the same size as the state of Washington at 66,582 square miles. It's a significantly sized piece of land. The Finns made several unsuccessful attempts to retake Karelia, but they did assist Estonia in gaining their independence from Soviet Russia. 
Finland and Russia signed the Treaty of Tartu in 1920, which established the Russo-Finnish border, with both parties making some territorial concessions. In 1921, Karelia staged a rebellion against the Soviets, who were quick to quell the uprising because a crucial railway between Petrograd and the northern city of Murmansk ran through parts of Karelia. The Karelian uprisings ended in 1922, the same year the Soviets won the Russian Civil War, and Finland now saw the Soviet Union as being too strong to conduct any more raids in Karelia. Finland then opted for closer relations with the newly formed League of Nations and enacted mandatory conscription in 1939. Finland built a 150-kilometer network of defensive positions on a strip of land stretching from the Gulf of Finland and Lake Ladoga called the Karelian Isthmus. The defensive line itself was called the Mannerheim Line and was within Finnish territory but not far from the Russian border and Petrograd. It was theorized that if the Russians invaded, the Karelian Isthmus was the most likely place. Enter the Man of Steel. Stalin saw Finland as a threat because the border was too close to then Leningrad, the same place as Petrograd and St. Petersburg, and Stalin feared the Germans would use Finland to launch an invasion. The Soviets even offered Finland a revised treaty where the Finns agreed to fight Germany if invaded and then allow Soviets into the country to aid in the defense. Yeah, right. Wow, Dimitri, thanks for helping me get rid of those pesky Germans. Yeah, no problem there, uh, Simo. Well, yeah, so, uh, you know, I should probably, uh, get the place cleaned up. You know, kids, kids of school in the morning and have a shit ton of laundry to fold. Oh, don't mind me, Simo. I'll, I'll I'll be here. Uh, what, do you, what do you mean? Oh, I'm staying. Uh, uh, what was that, Dimitri? I bet the Soviets wouldn't have left. I can see a meeting between the Soviet and Finnish delegation, and the Soviets are like, Come on, just give us a little more territory, please. Uncle Joe said I should try asking nicely. Is it ironic, or does it actually make perfect sense that the largest country on Earth has been consistently interested in more and more incremental bits of territory? If there is one thing I've learned doing this series, it's that Russia is run by land addicts. Anyway, that treaty they signed in 1920, the Treaty of Tartu, was increasingly becoming irrelevant as Finland and Russia saw each other as enemies. As early as 1928, the NKVD executed or deported people of Finnish heritage or origin within the Soviet Union. It is estimated that through Stalin's rule, between 8 and 25,000 Finns were killed or disappeared in the Soviet Union. At the onset of collectivization, 18,000 of the Ingren Finnish people were deported from near the Finnish border. The regions where Finns were deported from were replaced with Russians. In 1935, the Karelian Regional Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union initiated a propaganda program declaring the Finns to be, quote, dangerous nationalists, end quote. In 1937, Finnish language schools, Finnish media, and Lutheran churches were banned. NKVD agent Boris Yartsev met with Finnish Foreign Minister Rudolf Holtzi and Prime Minister Aimo Kajander in April 1938. I'm sorry about these names. I... I don't speak Finnish. 
Yartsev iterated the Soviet Union's distrust of Nazi Germany and did not want to meet the Germans' advance within Finland. Finnish delegations said they would be capable of defending against the Germans and just wanted to stay neutral in the whole situation. Yartsev suggested Finland either cede or lease islands in the Gulf of Finland to the Soviets so they could defend that sea lane leading to Leningrad. During the Winter War, the NKVD pioneered their battlefield secret policing methods by transporting Finnish prisoners of war to gulags throughout the Soviet Union. This treatment wasn't just reserved for enemy combatants, oh no. Red Army soldiers taken prisoner were also sent to gulags. Ronald Hingley describes a moment when Red Army soldiers were liberated from Finnish captivity. The soldiers were given a hero's welcome in Leningrad, marching through the city with red banners. They marched to a railway station on the outskirts of the city, away from the joyous music and embrace of the Soviet people, and towards cattle cars, waiting to transport them to the Russian wilderness. This reminds me so much of something we discussed in episode 2, where Russian soldiers returned home from fighting Napoleon, and Alexander I persecuted them because they were exposed to French and Western civilization. This will happen later with returning soldiers from defeating the Nazis, as we will see. It does make me wonder what will happen to Russian soldiers returning home from Ukrainian captivity. Finland knew about the USSR's aforementioned persecutions against Finnish people during the purges, and rightfully figured it would not be wise to either cede or lease land to the Soviets, nor let the Red Army waltz in with a blank check. Or no, because checks are the invention of capitalist pigs. On November 26, 1939, artillery struck a Soviet guard post near a town called Manila close to the Finnish border, not to be confused with the Philippines, Manila. The Soviets wanted to use this incident as a reason to invade Finland. However, it was later concluded by both Finnish and Soviet historians that the shelling was a false flag operation conducted by the NKVD, leading the two nations ultimately to war. And the Soviets, known for their battle hymns, particularly those sung by the Red Army Choir, had their very own songs when they invaded Finland. I had to do some digging, but I found a catchy tune written for Soviet soldiers during the Winter War. It was in Russian, but I translated some of it, and I'll sing some of it to you here. We are marching to the Karelian Isthmus. Through the Finnish snow For glory to me and you And glory to Stolly Poo For motherland and Uncle Joe We are marching to the Karelian Isthmus Bring a tank or two But the prettiest sight to see Is a red Helsinki Load the gun and shoot Was that as cringy for you as it was for me? Secret Police, the musical, everyone. Uh, if you didn't recognize that Soviet march, that's because I made it up and I can't sing. But credit to my wife for coming up with the name Stalipoo. Let's turn our gaze eastward to Russia's vast interior. The NKVD conducted numerous operations that didn't get a lot of coverage in history class. 
They juggled operations and relationships with China, Korea, and Japan. Let's start with China. Russia's eastward expansion to me feels like it gets very little attention, at least here in the US. Maybe partly because it happened during the time of the Tsars, and Russia wasn't necessarily threatening us directly. Russia, of course, wasn't spreading communism at that time. Who knows? During the time of Catherine the Great, Russia grew in size and ambition. Specifically, Russia wanted to have a naval presence in the Pacific, always on the lookout for warm water ports. Russia would inevitably be on a collision course with China, specifically the Qing dynasty. Luckily for Russia, the Qing had internal issues and were busy losing the Second Opium War to Britain and France. Sensing the Qing were in a losing fight, the Russians, specifically a Russian governor general of the Far East, Nikolai Muraviev, ordered troops to the Mongolian-Manchurian border, threatening the Chinese with a second front. The Chinese opted to negotiate with the Russians, ceding 600,000 square kilometers or a little over 231,000 square miles of territory from Manchuria to the Russian Empire in the Treaty of Aigun. In 1860, the Russian Empire gained another massive amount of land between Manchuria and the Pacific Ocean that includes the future or included the future city of Vladivostok in the Treaty of Peking. Fast forward to 1905. The Tsarist government became concerned that these same territories would be targeted by an expanding Japan. This became more of a concern after Russia's unexpected defeat in the Russo-Japanese War. Russian forces were slim at best in the vast Far East, and Chinese people immigrated to these regions ceded from China to Russia. The government in St. Petersburg didn't view Chinese immigration in a positive light to say the least, arguing that the Chinese would change the demographic and social fabric of the region. The Chinese in the Russian Far East were increasingly viewed as a threat to the economic success of ethnic Russians. It was the Tsarist government that made the first attempts to stifle Chinese immigration in the region. The First World War provided an opportunity for the Russian government to scare people about Chinese immigrants, saying that Germany was recruiting Chinese citizens for espionage activities. During the Russian Civil War, the Chinese government sent military protection for its citizens in a couple cities, including Vladivostok. The Far East regions were under control of the White Army or monarchist faction of the conflict until the Bolsheviks won the war. The Soviets initially allowed Chinese culture to thrive in the Far East regions, allowing for Chinese media and trade unions. New economic policies allowed Chinese laborers into Russia in areas where the labor force was short on manpower. According to the Institute of Modern History of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, by the late 1920s, more than half of commerce places and share of trade in the Far East were Chinese-owned. 48.5% of grocery retailers were Chinese, 22.1% of food, beverage, and tobacco staples were sold by Chinese merchants. According to the Russian Academy of Sciences Institute of History, Archaeology, and Ethnography, 67% of the Far East region's Chinese population resided in Vladivostok, and that would be over 43,000 Chinese residents. The year 1926 was a turning point for the Far East Russian Chinese. And by that point, Stalin had been in power for two years. In 1926, the People's Commissariat for Foreign Affairs, not the NKVD because they are internal affairs, 
decided Chinese and Korean migration to Russian territory was a big no-no. Koreans were forcefully relocated, and we'll get into that in a bit. And the Chinese economic power in the region was seen as a threat by Moscow yet again. Moscow enforced stricter security checks on the Sino-Soviet border for Chinese people trying to enter Russia, taxed outbound parcels at a rate of 34% if the contents of the package was less than 300 rubles, and charged 14 rubles and strip-searched Chinese people leaving the Soviet Union. The new measures successfully decreased the Chinese population in the eyes of Moscow, and anti-Asian uh, sentiment remained through Stalin's collectivization programs and subsequent purges. The Japanese 1931 invasion of Manchuria spiked anti-Asian tensions in the region, of course. April 17, 1936, the NKVD raided Milyanka, the Chinatown area of Vladivostok. They arrested undocumented tenants, people with criminal records, and brothel owners. Chinese residents in the area were expelled and their properties were seized. Later that same year, the Chinese consulate in Vladivostok had to intervene in liquidations carried out by the NKVD in Milyanka. Chair of the Far East NKVD, Genrik Lushkov, had orders to arrest all Chinese people with provocation and terrorist aims, with no regard to their actual nationality. Pretty broad interpretation of what's provocation or terrorism. When we think of a Stalinist Russia, and the night midnight arrests, we probably conjure an image of these raids in a European setting like Moscow or Leningrad, but in January 1938, the Politburo found it necessary to suppress Chinese minorities, and midnight mass arrests became more commonplace in areas where that, uh, where before they really had uh, not occurred. Moscow grew paranoid that the Japanese Kwantung army trained Russian-speaking Chinese people to enter Russia and spy. To Moscow, the logic was, deport the Chinese people, no more Japanese influence. I wondered if the Kremlin knew for a fact that uh, Russian-speaking Chinese people were being recruited as spies, but I wasn't able to find if that was true or not. Moving on to another oppressed minority in Russia's Far East, Koreans. Census reports of Korean people living in Russia's Far East date back to 1860. We briefly revisit the Treaty of Peking, where the Qing Dynasty ceded territory to the Russian Empire east of the Ussuri River. There is an intersection or a tri-point where Russia, North Korea, and China meet today. And I think it's worth noting that governments draw and redraw borders without regard to the people living in those areas and those people on the ground probably don't even know what's happening. So I speculate some groups of Korean people ended up being drawn into politically Russian territory. Then the Kingdom of Korea remained a tributary state of the Qing Dynasty despite the Peking Treaty. However, the Russo-Korean Treaty of June 1884 was signed and guaranteed Koreans currently living inside the Russian Empire's citizenship. But Koreans trying to immigrate to Russia thereafter were only permitted a two-year visit. Sorry, I know this is complicated with dates and treaties. I'm just so unfamiliar with the history of this part of the world. So the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution did not dissuade Koreans living in Japanese-occupied Korea from immigrating to Russia. 
Here are some interesting stats. By the 1920s, more than 100,000 Koreans lived in Russia's Far East, specifically Primorsky Krai, the same region as many Chinese immigrants to Russia. Russian peasants in this area actually benefited from Korean immigration since they could lease their lands to Korean families for profit. In 1920, the 45,000 uh, Koreans, or um, only 30% of the total Korean population in Russia, were granted citizenship, and by 1922, 83% of Soviet Korean households did not own land. As a side note, Korea itself became a protectorate of Japan in 1905 until 1945 at the end of the Second World War, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Things changed for Soviet Koreans, or Koryo Sarum, as the sources put it, as the Bolsheviks solidified administrative rule and governance over the Far East. Somewhere between 700 and 800 Koreans were deported to Japan in 1925. In the 1930s, more Koreans were forcibly deported. For example, anti-Korean violence in the Far East motivated many Koreans to flee either to uh, Manchuria or Korea itself. In 1928, four years into Stalin's rule, Koreans were removed from Vladivostok and moved north to the Khabarovsk Oblast. To replace the vacated Koreans, the Soviets relocated Slavs. Approximately 88,000 Koreans who did not hold Soviet citizenship were relocated to the Khabarovsk Oblast. In July 1937, the Central Executive Committee identified several ethnic minority groups they viewed as threats to the security of the USSR. As you probably guessed, one of those groups were Koreans. Pravda, the main Soviet newspaper, declared Korean Russians agents of Japan. August 1937, the Council of People's Commissars issued Decree Number 1428-326CC which ordered the deportation of Koreans from the Far East by January of the following year. This was signed off by both Vyacheslav Molotov and Joseph Stalin himself. I read in several different sources that many of the Korean minority population were relocated to the Kazakh SSR or Kazakhstan and the Uzbek SSR or Uzbekistan per the decree. The aim, like with displacing Chinese people, was to thwart espionage efforts of the Japanese. One interesting provision of the decree is that people forced to move would be compensated for, quote, abandoned, movable, and real property and crops, end quote. But instead of cash, the deportees received an exchange receipt, or in other words, a Soviet IOU, which was the quite the opposite of a AK-47. Unreliable. These receipts were not binding documents, and therefore did not have to be honored. The Soviet government actually waited a couple weeks before initiating deportations for the Korean Russians to complete their harvests. I speculate that was done for the government to seize their crops and sell them to help finance the regime. The sources say the Koryo Saman mostly grew rice. The 1st of September 1937 saw the first group of over 11,000 Koreans deported from their homes to Central Asia. 
the NKVD went house to house, pounded on doors and informed families they needed to leave within half an hour and did not know where they would be headed. The NKVD also had the audacity to change these to charge these families five rubles for their own transport on some dingy cargo train. Those families who who didn't resist were rewarded with over 300 rubles. By October 1937, over 74,000 Koreans were relocated within the Soviet Union. And when it was all said and done and these redistributions of people were completed in later years, the Kazakh SSR received approximately 100,000 Koreans and the Uzbek SSR received about 70,000 when it was all said and done. Some Koreans were even relocated as far as Murmansk, which is up by Finland, over 3,600 miles or 5,700 kilometers away from their homes, which is insane. My American agents, that would be like you and your family being deported from Miami and forcibly relocated to Anchorage, Alaska. That's the kind of distance we're talking about. Lavrenti Beria himself signed a decree to have minority groups, including Koreans, deported from border regions where the USSR saw foreign enemies like Germany, Poland, and Japan. In 1943, Korean soldiers in the Red Army were pulled out and sent to labor battalions in Central Asia and Korean deportations as a whole remained in place until 1946. One more stop in Asia, Japan. Like many other Asian populations in Russia, a Japanese minority settled in Vladivostok in the 1870s. But the Japanese population in Russia never surpassed that of the Chinese or Korean people. And like the Chinese and Korean population, the Japanese residents did not go unnoticed by the Tsar's government. The Japanese community established a trades union called the Association of Corporations in 1892, which went through a couple rebrandings before they landed on the Vladivostok Resident Ed uh, Association, which was suspected of conducting espionage during the Russo-Japanese War. Japanese people started leaving Russia after the Bolsheviks took power, but some individuals belonging to the Japanese Communist Party left Japan for Russia. During the Russian Civil War, an event called the Nikolaevsk Incident culminated in over 100 Japanese POWs and Japanese residents executed without trial in May 1920. The incident was used as a pretext for Japan to annex the northern part of Sakhalin Island in the Pacific, north of Hokkaido, previously split by north and uh, south between Japan and Russia. But fortunately, Japan and Russia have never had territorial disputes. Stalin is believed to have loved anime, sushi, and hentai porn. You know, who knew? Just kidding, that's my nonsense. Japan and Russia have, of course, had their share of border disputes, to put it mildly, like Sakhalin Island, or in recent months, there has been renewed dispute over the Kuril Islands. I won't go into all the border disputes because honestly it's complicated with the jostling of territories between China, Korea, and Japan, and Russia. And that would just pull away from focusing on the NKVD. We will venture back to this region of the world later in this episode, but for now just know that the Japanese population in Russia's Far East received more or less the same treatment as other Asian minorities. 
NKVD busied itself with intelligence and counterintelligence against Japan. So two guys we need to discuss here are Genrik Lushkov, who I mentioned earlier, and Ricard Sorge. Genrik Lushkov was born in 1900 in Odessa. He lived with his father and a couple siblings and attended school from 1908 to 1915. Lushkov dabbled in uh, Bolshevism due to his brother's membership in an underground Bolshevik movement in Ukraine. Uh, from there, he received military training and saw combat in the Russian Civil War, fighting against the White Army. Lushkov joined the Bolshevik Cheka, see episode 3 for more details on those guys, and he maintained his career through the Cheka's reorganization into the OGPU and the GPU. Lushkov performed critical industrial espionage at the Junkers Aviation Company in Germany, and his work garnered the attention of Joseph Stalin and the rest of that gaggle of twats in the Kremlin. Lushkov was rewarded with preferential assignments as chief of the NKVD for the Sea of Azov and Black Sea region. He was awarded the Order of Lenin and made a member of the Central Committee. He was also the lead investigator on the sham trials against Zinoviev and Kamenev. See episode 4 for details. But basically, Zinoviev and Kamenev uh, were, were detained on false charges, tried for treason, and executed. The military historian Alvin D. Kooks describes Lushkov in his book, Affair Lushkov, Anatomy of a Defector, as, quote, an arrogant, arbitrary, and sadistic bully, end quote. Lushkov looks like if uh, Hitler had a rounder face and a, f and a fro. Just like the other Genrik, Yagoda that is, Lushkov wears that silly Hitler stash. In July 1937, Lushkov received orders to move to Russia's Far East, where he would command at least 20,000 NKBD troops. Lushkov was ordered to personally assist in the elimination of Sevlad Belitsky, the Far East chief of which Lushkov was replacing as part of Stalin's purges. Imagine if part of your onboarding process for a new job was to eliminate your predecessor. Right this way, Ted. I'll show you to your desk. Uh, you know, uh, we're really excited to have you ab aboard. Your experience and technical skills are going to really enhance our sales forecast team. Happy to be here, Jim. Well, here's your desk. Jim, um, who's this? Th this? Oh, this, this is Sam. Sam has decided that working with us isn't worth his time and he wants to go back to school to better himself and maybe spend more time with his kids or some horse shit like that whatever we don't need sam here take this jim uh i i don't like guns what is this as part of your onboarding you have to kill sam uh, but kill your predecessor the ceo demands it Belinsky was eventually recalled to Moscow, arrested and executed due in part to Lushkov's investigation. While Lushkov was chief of the Far East NKBD, he received a summons to return to Moscow himself. Lushkov's Soviet spidey senses tingled, thinking this was a trap. We learned last episode that it was a common tactic to recall NKVD officers back to Moscow where they would be arrested and shot. That was the fate of the Kalima Gulag chief. And now Lushkov was holding his own death sentence. Lushkov checked out of the Soviet Union in June 1938. The circumstances around Lushkov's defection in, er, or to Japan are actually pretty heart-wrenching. Lushkov, his wife uh, Ina, and their 11-year-old daughter 
came up with a plan for Ina to take their daughter to Poland under the, the gaze of their daughter needing some kind of medical procedure. After some time, Ina would telegram a message with a code um, embedded in the note that would signal to Lushkov that it was safe for him to make the trek to Japanese territory. What really sucks is that for some reason that remains unknown to this day, Ina and the daughter were captured and the NKVD eventually massacred the Lushkov family. Ina was imprisoned in uh, Lubyanka, tortured for months uh, through the end of uh, 1938, and then executed. Other Lushkov family members were sent to gulags. Genrik's mom and brother were both killed, perhaps ironically the same brother that got Genrik into the freak show circus that is Bolshevism. Only Genrik's sister survived imprisonment. As for the 11-year-old daughter, it is unknown what happened to her, and I speculate that she was taken as a piece of meat to Beria and ended up buried in the garden. I'm not saying that's what happened, but I would bet money that that poor girl was at least victimized and killed by Beria. Lushkov left the Soviet Union for Japanese-controlled um, Manchukuo, i.e. Manchuria. He was the highest-ranking defector at that time and provided the Japanese with valuable information on NKVD troop size, strength, and position in the Russian Far East. The Japanese government wanted to keep the fact that Lushkov defected a complete secret, but it was later decided that the propaganda value of his defection was too great to pass up. When the news of Lushkov's defection was released, Moscow denied the, the uh, situation and said Lushkov was an imposter. But the Kremlin knew about Lushkov defecting because of the other spy we need to talk about, Rikard Sorge, who, um, who we'll get to know in a moment here. Lushkov's intimate uh, knowledge of the NKVD contributed to one of the few, or at least one of the few publicly known assassination attempts on Stalin himself. See, the NKVD did a lot, including providing, including providing security services for Soviet officials, including Stalin. Red bodyguards, if you will. There was a resistance movement outside of Russia opposed to Stalin's rule. They tried to meet Stalin at a resort in Sochi. Armed with detailed knowledge provided by Lushkov on how the NKVD protected the general secretary. But the plot was uh, anticipated since a Soviet spy infiltrated that group. Sadly, Lushkov was plagued by the fact that he had not heard from his wife or daughter since defecting to Japan. I mean, him knowing the NKVD as well as he did, he probably knew what was happening to them, which must have eaten at his conscience. Japanese intelligence conducted an investigation into Lushkov's family to no avail. His Japanese handlers were growing concerned about his mental, uh, his mental health, and they wanted him rooted in Japan, so they basically arranged for him to be paired with another woman. Fast forward to August 1945 when the Soviets invaded Manchukuo. Lushkov was stationed in Manchukuo with the Kwangtung army and he seemed to vanish. He was either captured and killed by the Red Army or killed by his own Japanese handlers. It wasn't until 1979 when um, Yutaka Takeoka, who was Lushkov's handler at the end of the war, 
admitted to killing Lushkov. He, he said he wanted to let Lushkov run, but the Red Army would have um, more than likely caught up to him, and there would then be the risk of Lushkov spilling Japanese secrets. Lushkov and uh, Takeoka met in a hotel. Takeoka tried to persuade Lushkov to kill himself, and when Lushkov refused, Takeyoka shot him. If they made a miniseries about Lushkov, I, I would watch it. What a um, transformation from intrigue about Bolshevism to fighting with the Red Army and becoming chief of the secret police in an entire region. All of it pulled out from under him. And suddenly, when it turned out the government he dedicated his career to wanted to purge him. He escaped, and that government seized his family, tortured them. Then he worked hard, I think, to undermine the Soviet Union as best he could. But they came kicking in the door in Manchukuo. Then the people that gave him sanctuary viewed him as a security risk and killed him. This is seriously an untapped story here. Let's move on to Ricard Sorge. And let's get this out of the way first. His name is pronounced Ricard Sorge. I thought it was Richard Sorge at first, but he was neither British nor American. He was born in Azerbaijan in the Russian Empire on October the 4th, 1895. His father, Gustav, was a German mining engineer, and his mom, Nina, was Russian. Ricard was the youngest of nine kids. No way. Ricard had a comfortable childhood for the most part. His family moved from Baku to Berlin in 1898, and Gustav had a senior-level job at a financial services company called Descanto Gesellschaft, which, side note, was founded in 1851 until 1929 when they merged with Deutsche Bank. So the Sorgues were doing well financially, definitely bourgeois. In school, Ricard did what I think many of us do, uh, applied himself in subjects, in some subjects, and didn't give a rat's ass about others. He was a rabble rouser in school, a troublemaker, a rebel. When World War I broke out, Ricard joined the German army and served in an artillery unit on the Western Front. He received the Iron Cross Award for courageous fighting, but in March 1916, Ricard was badly wounded when shrapnel broke both his legs in addition to losing a couple fingers. He was removed from the battlefield to recover in hospital, in hospital, but Ricard lived the rest of his life with a permanent limp. More importantly was Ricard's transformation from German nationalist into a communist. And because of his injuries, Ricard would not return to the battlefield, but instead studied uh, economics in Berlin and went on to earn a PhD in political science from Hamburg University. This guy was no dummy. On top of the PhD, Ricard learned to speak German, Russian, English, French, Japanese, and Chinese, and I'm not sure if Mandarin or Cantonese. And as somebody who can barely speak English, as you can probably tell as I as I'm uh, <laughs> as I'm uh, speaking, uh, I find multilingual people very very impressive. My brain is not wired that way. In the 1920s, he worked as a coal miner. That was his way of embedding himself amongst the proletariat, and he also worked as a teacher and a journalist. He also started an affair with one of his former professor's wives, Christina Gerlach. 
they would marry after the death of her husband due to complications uh, of diabetes. Around 1922, Ricard joined the German Communist Party, and for his political views, he was fired from both his teaching position and from his uh, coal mining job. Ricard got involved with the Communist International Group, or uh, Comintern as, it, as it's best known, and from there he was recognized by Soviet agents to have a brilliant mind, so they recruited him. For a while, the Soviets had Ricard traveling around Europe as a journalist, but in 1929, the GPU sent Ricard to Germany, where he joined the Nazi party, which of course was a cover. He was firmly on the side of the communists. Ricard and Christina got a divorce, but hey, no problem for good-looking Ricard. Also, the GPU sent him on an all-expense-paid trip to Shanghai to do just a little spying. Not sure if it was all expense paid, but he was sent to Shanghai undercover as an agricultural journalist in 1930. He was later recalled to Moscow briefly before being sent to Japan. Both his Nazi party membership and status as a journalist allowed him access to the German embassy in Tokyo as an expert on Japan. The staff at the German embassy brought Ricard's, uh, or bought Ricard's BS because of his um, visible battlefield injuries, and Ricard didn't really give a shit about trashing the Nazi party. He must have been the real deal, right? Once established, Ricard recruited a wealthy friend uh, he'd met in China, a man named Hatsumi Otsaki. Ozaki hated the Japanese government, so he was well motivated to try and undermine it. Ricard also befriended the, the um, German military attaché, a man named Eugene Ott, but, uh, or both men, toured Manchuria together in 1934, and Ricard's reports on Manchuria and Japan were highly valued in Berlin. Also, Ricard seemed to have... Uh, had a difficult time keeping his little Soviet spy from, um, how you say, uh, infiltrating people's wives. He started an affair with Ott's wife. In 1938, Ott became the German ambassador to Japan. And this opened the intelligence floodgates for, uh, for Ricard. Ott shared classified info with, with Ricard and thus so did the rest of the German embassy staff. Ricard was in a position where all reports provided by attaches were collected by Ricard and pieced together in larger reports on Japan, of which he authored. Let's circle back to Genrik Lushkov for a moment. Remember, Lushkov defected to Japan in June 1938, and of course Moscow wanted to know what kind of uh, Russian tea he was spilling. A German intelligence officer was assigned to debrief Lushkov, and because Sergei was the or was in a position to collect classified documents, Lushkov's information was compromised. Lushkov's assessment revealed Soviet troop deployments in the Far East, and that if Japan attacked the, the Far East, the Red Army would not be able to mount a sufficient defense. 
But interestingly, about six weeks after Sergei passed Lushkov's report to Moscow, Soviet forces pushed to close the area along the Soviet-Japanese border where Lushkov had defected. And the, army, and the Japanese army clashed with uh, Soviet troops, culminating in the Battle of Kasan Lake in the summer of 1938. Today, that border separates Russia and the northeast uh, North Korea. Anyway, Japan's leadership did not want this clash to escalate into a larger conflict because they were already busy with their conquest of China. Japan and the Soviets found a diplomatic solution, and the Soviets captured an area called Chengkufeng. Now, while this is going on, Japan is working on an alliance, or working to establish an alliance with Nazi Germany. Stalin surprised many by then going and signing the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in 1939, which was basically a non-aggression pact between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. In September 1939, the Soviets annexed Eastern Poland and the Baltic nations, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Nazi Germany annexed Western Poland, and the German High Command prepared to attack the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa. Ricard was aware of plans to attack the USSR and warned the Soviet High Command. His warnings became increasingly urgent through 1940, and especially in 1941. Ricard even knew the approximate time uh, of the attack or the approximate time the attack would take place in late June. A German colonel explicitly tells or told Sorge that nearly 200 divisions were amassing on the Soviet border. Now, did Stalin use his listening ears and take Sorge's warnings seriously? Um, not really. When Germany launched their invasion of the Soviet Union on June 22nd, 1941, Sergei was inquired about what the next possible moves could be for Japan. Would they launch their own offensive in the East? It appears that's exactly what uh, Nazi Germany was trying to persuade Japan to do. However, the Japanese did not have the resources for such an ambitious assault. They particularly lacked oil, rubber, and uh, mineral resources, which is why the Japanese focused their attacks on China and Southeast Asia with the assistance of uh, oil imports from the U.S. The U.S. sanctioned Japan by cutting off, Jap uh, by cutting off Japan's uh, oil supplies. No fighting and no oil make Japan something something. Go crazy? Don't mind if I do! No oil meant Japan was pissed at the U.S. and would eventually launch the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th of 1941, and Japan would not be able to launch a land war on the Soviet Far East. Sorge learns from his buddy, Hatsumi Ozaki, uh, who learns from Japan's high command that Japan has no intention to attack the USSR until at least 1942, if at all. With the benefit of hindsight, we know that never happened. Sergei passes this information along to Moscow, which helps the Kremlin decide that it is safe to pull troops from the Far East to aid in their fight against the Germans. See, from Japan's perspective, they would have liked to see Moscow fall to the Germans before Japan attacked the Far East. Just speculating here, and I say this not being an expert on military strategy, nor ever having served myself, I can see why Japan would have wanted this uh, outcome first before moving into Russia, because the Russian government 
at that time was top heavy. Stalin and the the um, Politburo had a lot of power. So I wonder if Soviet forces would have been paralyzed, even temporarily so, without Moscow. What if Japan kept the Soviets guessing and the Soviets never redistributed troops? Then the Japanese government may have actually seen the capture of Moscow. Maybe. Just speculating. Sorge wasn't the Kremlin's only source on uh, Japan's military ambitions in the Far East. Stalin would not have moved 18 Soviet divisions from east to west based on one guy's information, albeit a, a trusted and reliable source. Moscow broke Japan's diplomatic codes and confirmed Sorge's intelligence. People are catching on to Sorge's shenanigans, though. The German embassy recognizes there is a leak somewhere in their information network, but doesn't believe the source is Sorge. But the Japanese are not so dismissive. Sorge is caught after another Soviet spy, Yokoto Miyagi, is caught and interrogated. Not wanting to get stitches, Miyagi opts for broken legs instead. He defenestrates himself, but survived. I couldn't find how many stories he fell from, but I like to think he jumped out the ground floor window. So he leaps out the ground floor window, maybe falls about two feet, and hits the ground with a thud. Maybe he is spinning around on the ground like a glass bottle with both his arms and legs uh, flailing in the air. Maybe some Japanese police surround him and they stand there looking at him and then they look at each other like, what the hell is this guy doing? Then he stops and just pouts on the ground like, oh, damn it. I thought that would kill me. That only happened in my imagination. But what really happened was that Miyagi confessed to Sergei being a spy and Sorge was arrested on October 18th, 1941. The Japanese thought that he was a German spy because of his uh, Nazi party membership, but Berlin didn't claim him. They were like, nine, we don't know him. When it's finally revealed sometime later that he is a Soviet spy in Moscow, it's like, niet, we don't know him. I wonder if Sorge knew the Russians wouldn't claim him. They didn't even want to trade Sorge for a high-ranking military officer. So how do you like that for communism, Ricard Sorge? Only Sorge's Japanese wife visited him in Sugumo, or excuse me, Sugamo prison. Sorge agrees to provide information of his activities to the Japanese as long as his wife and the wives of his comrades in the spy ring are left alone. Later in 1942, Sergei's ex-wife would be arrested, accused of being a German spy, and sent to a gulag. Sergei thought his comrades would come through, but or come through and swap him for somebody else, since he thought he was so valued, and honestly, he was. But Moscow didn't come through. On November the 7th, 1944, Richard Sergei. Uh, uh, is sent to meet your deity of choice by hanging. His last words were, Oh, damn it. I thought the communists were my friends. Just kidding. I actually have no idea what his last words were. Quite a remarkable dude, in my opinion. Let's head out of Japan and look at NKVD activities in Poland. We mentioned Poland, Lithuania in episode 1 and 2 regarding their relationship with Moscow. I won't go into too much depth on Polish history, but let's at least go back to the end of World War I where 
Poland re-emerged as a state after being partitioned between Germany, Austria, and the Russian Empire, a triple subjugation that had existed since 1795. We saw the USSR and Nazi Germany form a tenuous peace in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in uh, August 1939. Both regimes invaded Poland, the Nazis from the west and the Soviets from the east. And if you've been following this show thus far, you know one secret police group is bad enough. Poland had the rare and horrific experience of two secret police uh, subjecting the Polish people to their respective torment. Of course, we are focusing on the NKVD today. The Gestapo will have to wait for another time. During the 1939 invasion, the Soviets advanced to a, a predetermined line called the Kurzon Line, stipulated by the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Kurzon ran approximately on the San Vistula and Naru rivers. Remember, the NKVD practiced their techniques to cull non-Russians from annexed territories in Finland around the same time, and they practiced those same techniques in Poland. The annexed portion of Poland suffered an estimated 1.2 million civilians deported from their homes and an additional 250,000 Polish military personnel deported during hostilities with the Soviets. Deputy Commissar of the NKVD and future chief of the KGB, Ivan Serlov, was the deportation master in Poland. Serlov took control of every detail, eliminating every perceived threat to the USSR. Bankers, business owners, hotel owners, restaurateurs, prison wardens, clergymen, and members of political parties other than the Communist Party, and uh, people who were expelled from the Communist Party. A lot of people from the Polish bourgeoisie. The NKVD even kidnapped Red Cross workers, deported people who traveled abroad or had some kind of uh, contact with outsiders, and people who uh, studied a, a language called Esperanto. Now, I did not know what Esperanto was before doing the research for this episode. Uh, Esperanto is what's called an international auxiliary language created by Polish um, ophthalmologist uh, Ludwig Lazarus Zen Zanahoff, I think, in uh, 1997. I just had to pause for a second because I said Esperanto was created in 1997, and that is not correct. It is 1887. It's amazing what happens when your your finger uh, presses the key right next to the one that you want. Um, so yes, yeah, so uh, Ludwig Zenehoff created Esperanto in 1887, and Esperanto is like an amalgamation of various Indo-European languages and was intended by Zenehoff to lower the language barriers between people. To me, it seems like an odd criterion to deport somebody for knowing Esperanto, but as we have seen with the Russian government historically, anybody who has even looked at anything Western is viewed as being dangerous to the integrity of the state. So military prisoners were distributed over several locations like Kozelsk, south of uh, Moscow, the Storobelsk in the Luhansk region of Ukraine, and Ostav... Oh, oh, these Russian words, uh, or towns, I mean. Ostashkov, south of Leningrad. In April 1940, the NKVD rounded up over 4,000 prisoners and drove them to a forest at Katyn, about 10 miles from the town of Smolensk. They were all massacred, each shot in the back of the head and thrown into a mass grave. 
When the Germans occupied Smolensk, they found the mass grave and published its findings, or published the findings. Uh, it was a massacre the Germans didn't commit with high propaganda value. The findings did cause friction between the Soviet government and the Polish government in exile, but the Soviets pointed fingers at Germany, saying they committed the Katyn massacre. Which, um, I, I said 4,000 prisoners, but uh, in truth, and um, a different source, sources point to this. There were many tens of tens of thousands of, of different kinds of people um, executed in the Katyn forest. In hindsight, this would be a plausible. Well, so so in hindsight, pointing the fingers at the Nazis would be plausible, but the Soviets didn't start finding concentration camps, for example, until 1944. So basically, they um, committed this atrocity and then pointed the fingers at the Nazis. And beyond the NKVD, more recently we saw the, the, the Kremlin explain that Ukraine itself committed the massacre at Bucha. It's the same BS tactic here. Furthermore, the NKVD handed over many German citizens, Jews, and uh, other people deemed undesirable by the Nazis directly to the Gestapo. Those unfortunate individuals had the unenviable uh, uh, ability to compare and contrast which secret police treated them worse. The 1939 invasion of Poland by the Nazis is seen as the start of the Second World War in Europe. Hitler's violation of Polish sovereignty obligated Britain and France to declare war on Germany. But why was war not declared on the USSR? Well, France had a defensive military convention with Poland aimed only at Germany as stipulated by this convention. France even promised military action against Germany should Poland be attacked. And the agreement was signed in Paris on September the 4th, 1939. If you're keeping track at home, that would be three days after the German invasion. Yet France provided minimal support, not nearly as robust as promised. Spoiler alert, the French did not attack Germany. So we can see the convention was not honored uh, wholeheartedly against Germany. And France, uh, legally, technically, whatever, uh, had no... Uh, obligation to declare war on the Soviet Union. Poland had a similar defense pact with Britain, but this pact was much more broad, offering assistance in defense against, quote, a European power, end quote. This was a mutual defense agreement, so either nation would come to the other's aid should they be attacked. There was a secret protocol in the pact offering assistance to Poland in an attack by Germany, but in the case of an attack by another nation, the parties would convene to determine the best course of action. Yet this uh, contradicted Britain's obligation to attack the USSR immediately in September of 1939. When the Soviets did attack, the Polish ambassador in London called on Britain for help, and Lord Halifax was like, nah bro, fuck that. Just kidding. He said, Pip, pip, I spilled me tea. In the case of Poland, do nothing, you see? Gosh, I'm getting my quotes all mixed up here. Uh, no, Halifax actually said, quote, As regards to Soviet aggression, we were free to take our own decision and, and decide whether to declare war on the USSR or not, end quote. There were other conversations among Britain's political establishment. Britain's political establishment, excuse me, uh, whether to revive the exist or re 
I'm going to start that over. There were other conversations among Britain's political establishment, whether to re reveal the existence of this secret protocol, but it was decided not to because it would beg the question about other secret police. <laughs> secret police. It would beg the question about other secret protocols attached to other treaties. All Britain did in the face of German aggression was finger wag, and uh, as Germany took their half of Poland, then they declared war. And they, by they, I mean Britain, declared war. The Soviets didn't attack Eastern didn't attack Eastern Poland until two weeks later on the 17th of September. So they observed the military and diplomatic response by the West first. Seeing little to no response, the Soviets claimed there there were uh, Ukrainian and Belarusian ethnic groups left over in Eastern Poland that needed protection, so they invaded. Does that sound familiar? You know, it's a matter of time before the current or future Kremlin cuckoo birds decide that uh, Alaska is rightfully Russian and uh, try to take it. Neither Britain nor France had the appetite for war in the 1930s with the horrors of World War I in living memory of many. They were reluctant to go to war with Germany again, let alone the Soviet Union, a country many times the size of these three combined. But World War II was in full swing. So what was the NKVD's role? Most of this will focus on the Eastern Front in the European theater until the end of the war when we revisit Manchuria briefly. As Operation Barbarossa unfolded, the Red Army's initial performance was lackluster for a number of reasons. The Red Army was not prepared for a major offensive by a uh, Western European power. The Soviet industry was not fully transformed into a war machine, and Stalin's purges of the Red Army command crippled chain of command. That and uh, fear permeated the Red Army. Taking the initiative to mount a defense would be seen as a threat by Stalin, and he'd have that officer shot. Stalin dismissed Ricard Sergei's warnings of imminent German attack, so Stalin mistakenly took Hitler for a rational man. Stalin disappeared to his uh, dacha just outside Moscow, perhaps having a nervous breakdown, realizing he'd fucked up. They ask you how you are, you just have to say that you're fine when you're not really fine. Or Stalin was seeing who would act first to defend the motherland while uh, uh, sticking their neck out uh, for the NKVD's acts. Stalin's paranoia was such that um, if he saw somebody taking, again, the initiative or trying to take power, then he'd have them shot. The Germans advanced well into Soviet territory, making their way towards Leningrad, Moscow, and Stalingrad, previously Tsaritsyn. The NKVD caused destruction and death on their own uh, on the retreat. They worked their deportation networks, transporting undesirables and POWs out of the Baltic states via train. In Kiev or Kyiv uh, and other smaller villages, the NKVD booby-trapped buildings and other structures. German soldiers, exhausted from fighting, would find temporary refuge in buildings not destroyed by shelling, uh, only to be incinerated by a bomb triggered by opening a door or a drawer. Sometimes bombs were on timers. The Germans would set up field hospitals, depots, or command posts that would be blown up hours or days later. This tactic had a profound psychological effect on the Germans. No place was safe, even 
if you killed or otherwise drove out all the Soviet defenders. Come on, Ivan. Set those traps and let's get the hell out of here. I can hear the panzers coming. Shh. Relax, Boris. We're the NKVD. We're the scariest things out here. And I don't feel sorry for the Germans at all in, in, its, uh, in these situations. I'm demonstrating the NKVD's ability to tactically wreak havoc on the defense. The NKVD performed counterintelligence within the Red Army itself. They dealt with Soviet resistance, collaborators, and of course, dissenters. NKVD officers coerced and bribed many within the Red Army ranks to perform counterintelligence. The Stalin and Beria needed to keep their eyes and ears on deviants and other threats within the army. The NKVD also deployed their own paramilitary units to fight on the front. Their role was to patrol uh, Soviet borders, operate in the rear of the Soviet lines, provide strategic security, and conduct all manner of espionage, foreign and civil. They also cleaned up any remaining German troops and uh, local resistance movements that were left over after the Soviets pushed through. The NKVD fought alongside the regular uh, rank-and-file Red Army troops, especially in Stalingrad, where they had helped uh, boost morale, we'll say. In February 1941, the NKVD split into two separate organizations, the NKVD, still headed by Beria for internal affairs, and the NKGB for state security, headed by Sevalod Merkulov. The NKGB would be reabsorbed by the NKVD in July 1941 and then separated again in April 1943. Order number 270 declared that those who surrendered to the Germans were enemies of the state, which had fatal consequences if a surrendered Red Army soldier found themselves back in NKVD custody. In 1942, Order number 227 declared that those who didn't conform to Red Army ideology would be uh, attached to battalions in the most dangerous areas of the fighting. Unlike their German SS counterparts, the NKVD troops did not go into combat in mechanized or armored units. For example, the NKVD units were organized into numerous rifle divisions, uh, mostly fighting in Europe. The 3rd Rifle Division saw action in Manchuria in, in uh, August 1945, but, but these actions appear less well documented than those in Europe. Stalingrad was a symbolic turning point on the Eastern Front in favor of the Red Army and the Kursk, or, or, and Kursk was a military, military and logistics turning point also in favor of the Red Army. The Germans would be on the defensive after 1943 until the Soviets reached Berlin in 1945. Meanwhile, Stalin was in the Kremlin gazing at a wall map of Germany, salivating and vigorously tugging at his tiny tyrant as Soviet forces closed in on Berlin. The Red Army unleashed a barrage of pent-up rage upon the Nazi regime's capital city. Unfortunately, Hitler shot himself before the Soviets reached der Führerbanke, but the Soviets were victorious in the East. Lavrenti Beria once remarked, quote, I've only one wish in life, to conduct the interrogation of Hitler and Goering, end quote. That would have been one hell of an interrogation, fit for TV. Cue the uh, meme of Michael Jackson eating popcorn. Beria beating the ever-loving fuck out of Hitler. Two historical twats, one torture chamber. Only one twat leaves. I know I skipped over a, a ton, <laughs> 
uh, of the Eastern Front's conclusion, but this uh, isn't a World War II podcast, uh, at least not primarily, right? We do talk about World War II a lot here, though. The NKVD does not view peace as a time to rest. And tragically, more deportations were in or, or were to occur. The Soviet citizens who were in contact with Germans during the war were of special interest. Both high-ranking and lower-ranking Soviet troops released from German captivity were, were uh, screened by the political police. Those found to have fought for the Germans and Soviet POWs were deported to gulags. So you, you could be a, a, a slave laborer in a German concentration camp, liberated by your so-called comrades, and UNO reverse card right into a gulag. Oh, but Soviet leadership found to have fought with the Germans were just hanged. This reminds me of something we talked about in episode two, which if you haven't uh, checked that one out, uh, please do so. But uh, I, I think I brought it up briefly here as well. Um, after Tsar Alexander I defeated Napoleon, his army was treated like dog shit upon return to Russia, partly because it was thought uh, those soldiers brought back dangerous Western experiences and ideas. I'd bet money the same will happen with uh, Russian soldiers returning from Ukraine today. Man, Russia's government has been using the same playbook for centuries. And uh, an uh, authoritarian is often riding high after a victorious military campaign, and Stalin was likely at the height of his power in 1945, having faced down Nazi Germany. But there was a new threat on the horizon in Stalin's view, and that threat would be on full display on August 6th, 1945. First in a test in the United States, New Mexico desert, then 5,000 miles away at Hiroshima, and then again at Nagasaki, came the world-shaking explosions of the atomic bomb. Latest reports from the Japanese say that 126,000 died as the result of the damage done by the single bomb that blasted the city. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. It is an atomic bomb. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. I think one could argue that the bombing of Hiroshima was the beginning of the Cold War. It would certainly be an obvious point in time. Perhaps the bombing added the dimension of nuclear annihilation to an existing race between the United States and the Soviet Union. It certainly... Uh, upped the stakes of, geopol of geopolitics and changed warfare forever. Never before did an army have the ability to wipe out a city in the flash of an instant. Estimates vary, 
But Hiroshima Red Cross Hospital estimated the bomb killed 70,000 initially and 50 to 60,000 in the preceding two months from injuries sustained during the bombing and the lingering radiation. What was Stalin's reaction to the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Assistant Secretary of War John McCloy was there at the Potsdam Conference witnessing Stalin's reaction to President Truman informing him about the bomb. Now at Potsdam, one final move. John McCloy. One of the great uh, questions was what we were going to do about uh, the Russians and the bomb and whether we should notify Mr. Stalin about it. We finally made up our minds that we had to, being partners, uh, but uh, the question was what his attitude would be. And that afternoon at the conclusion of the uh, conference, uh, President Truman walked around to Stalin uh, with uh, Chip Bowen, our interpreter, and uh, he told him uh, substantially this, that uh, we uh, want you to know, uh, Generalissimo, that uh, we have uh, now developed uh, a, what we call a secret weapon, which is uh, of uh, tremendous power and uh, which in a few days we hope to use in the war against Japan. Well, knowing what he was going to do, I watched uh, intently uh, Mr. Stalin's face. Pretty much said, well, that's fine, just we'll, uh, we'll use it. And uh, what, what's the next item on the agenda? It let everybody down terribly because we were so worked up emotionally over this thing. I have always been of the opinion that Stalin did not grasp the importance of the uh, statement. It is likely that Stalin knew about the bomb and its potential because the NKVD had their um, tentacles at the heart of the Manhattan Project. Now, Stalin probably didn't know the devastation that would be caused. Uh, in science, there's always a margin of uncertainty, and the scientists could only speculate about that margin that uh, should the bomb be dropped on a city. Now, Russia had an uh, atomic scientist back in the time of the Tsars in the early 1900s, more or less around the same time as some uh, physicists theorized atomic fission, or the splitting of atoms. Scientific work in this area continued through both revolutions the Civil War, and into the Soviet era. During the Second World War, the Soviets had their hands full with just surviving the war, so atomic science took a back seat, that is, until the Americans unleashed hell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Stalin put Lavrenti Beria in charge of the project, a dictator ordering a pedophile to make nuclear weapons. Aren't human beings just the best? Actually, this was going to be an uphill battle for Beria, because the Soviet Union was in recovery mode after the war. But failure likely meant death. Beria had five years to deliver the Soviets' first atomic bomb. He ordered Soviet nuclear physicist Igor Kurchatov to head the project with the Soviet Union's premier scientists. But because they were on a tight deadline, they couldn't start from scratch. They needed a head start, and the NKVD assisted. The NKVD recruited Klaus Fuchs, a German, uh, or Klaus Fuchs, I think it's pronounced, a German refugee living in the UK, who'd worked on the American bomb project in Los Alamos, New Mexico, and was still involved in atomic projects when he returned to the UK. 
Unbeknownst to everyone in the Manhattan Project, Fuchs identified as a communist, and for the purposes of this show, I'll be calling him Klaus Pukes because he makes me sick. Not as sick as Beria makes me, but I couldn't uh, think of a way to make fun of Beria's name. Damn my lack of creativity. So Pukes shuffled a lot of secrets to the Soviets, technical documents and other data regarding the process of building a bomb. The Soviets also recruited uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, two U.S. citizens, who provided the Soviets with classified documents, including those on nuclear um, nuclear weapon designs. Uh, can't have all your spies in one basket. When documents made it to the Soviet Union, only Igor Kurchatov was permitted to sift through the stolen intelligence, then instruct his scientists on next steps. The project was um, kind of a shit show. Scientists and technicians improperly uh, improperly handling radioactive materials, solving problems at the last minute, cobbling together salvaged resources. It was a less formulated process in the Soviet, for the Soviets' first bomb than, um, than that of the British and the Americans. Then there was the uh, ever-present fear that failure meant death. During a Politburo meeting, Stalin was asked what would happen if the bomb failed. And Stalin said, quote, we can always shoot the scientists, end quote. Nice. Imagine if that was, uh, you, you know, standard at your work. Somebody asks your manager, hey, what happens uh, if the Q4 sales are off? Oh, well, we can always shoot the sales team. Goodness gracious. Now, the type of bomb the Soviets were constructing was of a similar design to that of the American Fat Man, the bomb dropped on Nagasaki, and similar to the bomb tested at Los, Al at, uh, Los Alamos, Trinity. I'm not a nuclear physicist, so I'll, I will do my best here. The device was an implosion bomb. The nuclear materials, in this case a sphere of hollow plutonium, or a hollow sphere of plutonium, uh, are fissioned and detonated by a uh, surrounding sphere of charges, explosive charges. The precise timing and, and geometry of the charge explosions compresses the plutonium core causing critical mass fission and an explosion. The Soviets were set to test their first implosion bomb on August 29th, 1949. RDS-1, or First Lightning, or Joe-1 to the Americans, was successfully detonated at the Semipalatinsk test site in the Kazakh SSR. The Soviets celebrated their achievement and many of the lead scientists were awarded the Order of Lenin. Meanwhile, the US was freaking out. US newspapers picked up the story before Soviet citizens even knew what their government had achieved and US officials were were uh, or US officials knew some kind of response was needed as a show of force. And so began the decades-long pissing contest of the Cold War. Competition in nuclear weapons, rockets, space, and numerous proxy wars around the world. But the Soviet Union's struggle with the West would far outlast its leader. Going into 1950, Stalin would not be long for this earth, and neither would Beria. Stalin's death and Beria's downfall. 
1953, Stalin was 73 years old and suffered several cardiac events in recent years as well as chronic conditions throughout his life, not to mention the stress of surviving as a dictator and the drinking and smoking that he partook in. Stalin's doctor told him a couple years before to work less. Stalin was also a night owl, hosting drunken dinner parties with his inner circle until 2 or 3 in the morning. The members of his inner circle would eventually go home and Stalin would work another couple hours before going to bed at around 5 or 6 in the morning and then rising at around 11 with not-so-stiff Soviet wood. You know, he's in his 70s. I just lost all my 70-year-old male listeners. So the details around Stalin's death remain murky-ish to this day. February 28, 1953, Stalin bid farewell to his cronies from a wild night at Dave & Buster's, Soviet style. No, they were departing Stalin's dacha, or cabin if you're from Minnesota, just outside Moscow. Stalin uh, presumably worked and went to bed later, but the next morning he did not emerge from his study, nor did the motion sensors installed in his office detect movement, nor did any of the dacha staff check on him. Uh, Particularly the longtime maid who was like one of, if not the only person with full access to the dacha. Several sources say the staff didn't check on Stalin because they were too scared. That is certainly what is depicted in um, the Death of Stalin film, which obviously takes dramatic and creative liberty. Go figure, it's satire, but uh, we'll, come to, we'll come back to that later because some people seem to not uh, understand satire. Eventually, somebody did check on Stalin and he was laying face down on the floor in a soaked puddle of his own piss. Stalin toddled along for a few days in pain until the Man of Steel himself finally um, uh, stopped being alive on March 5th, 1953, officially from a cerebral hemorrhage. Interestingly, Russian composer Ser uh, uh, Sergei Pokoviev, who wrote the Suite from Romeo and Juliet, which, if you ignore the title, the music is the perfect theme song for Joseph Stalin. Look it up. I, I would play it, but uh, Prokofiev's music isn't public domain until 2024. Did Stalin really die of a cerebral hemorrhage, though? Well, first, uh, Secret Police is not a conspiracy show. Personally, I tire of conspiracy theories, but I think this is worth talking about. There are theories that Stalin was poisoned by Beria or another member of his inner circle for fear of being purged since in the 1950s Stalin went on another purge called the Doctor's Plot because he was so paranoid he thought the physicians were out to get him, particularly the Jewish physicians. Another uh, theory which I find more interesting is that Yugoslavian dictator Josip Tito had Stalin poisoned since Stalin and Tito had beef. Uh, Stalin sent many assassins to uh, kill Tito, but Tito was like Neo from the Matrix or Castro, you know, from Cuba, uh, avoiding assassination attempts left and right like it was, uh, like it was dodgeball. Tito even sent a letter to Stalin, and I'll paraphrase, Tito said something along the lines of, Stop sending people to kill me, or I will send one, and I won't have to send another. I've never read that Stalin opened a note from a pianist and laughed himself to death, like, like in the death of Stalin. 
Um, and another thing I found funny about that movie is when he uh, does start to like choke or whatever it is that the actor is doing, he uh, he he grabs his chest like he's having a heart attack, which is not what you would do if you're having a cerebral hemorrhage. Very He's dead. Let's get rid of our last monster, Lavrenti Beria. Beria lasted several months after Stalin. The remaining members of the Politburo and Stalin's inner circle had an interest in removing Beria for several reasons. Beria, being chief of internal affairs, possessed evidence, lots of evidence, regarding the crimes of the other members, including Nikita Khrushchev, for their involvement in the purges in the 1930s. I've got documents. I have documents on all of you. So they had an interest in keeping that stuff hidden, which Beria would have used to muscle his way to power. Beria was also the most likely successor to Stalin and had, you know, one key advantage, the NKVD. Actually, the secret police were no longer the NKVD, since in March 1946, the NKVD and the NKGB were renamed the MVD and the MGB, uh, respectively, and retained their uh, leadership until the MGB chief, uh, Merkulov, was replaced by General Viktor Abakumov. And going back to the film again, I'm not sure why the movie, or why, why in the movie they insist on calling the secret police the NKVD, since they didn't technically exist in 1953, but maybe realistically speaking, they called it the NKVD out of habit. Lastly, Beria, you know, he was Beria, a gross, pedophilic, greasy, slimy little bastard with a brain and ambition. Beria was somebody who just needed to be killed to sort of wipe clean, in a way, the leadership and have a fresh start away from the terrors of earlier times. June 26, 1953, Beria was arrested by Field Marshal Zukov and other Red Army officers during a committee meeting. The Red Army hated Beria too because of NKVD infiltration within the ranks among other things. What's crazy too is the Red Army occupied strategic checkpoints around Moscow with tanks and heavy weapons just in case they had to fight against the NKVD's um, multiple rifle divisions. Beria was taken to a prison chamber at the army headquarters in Moscow. He was tried and found guilty of treason against the Soviet Union, but his affairs with other women came to light during the trial as well. Zuberia was sentenced to death. They dragged Beria to a prison cell to be executed like so many others. Beria cried and screamed, throwing himself to the, to the floor, begging for his life like a little bitch. It was the same with his predecessor, Yagoda. These guys like to, like to invoke fear and terror in others, but when the gun is turned on them, they collapse and wail like the cowards they really are. Beria was shot through the head on December 23rd, 1953. So rest in piss, Beria, you dead bitch. The world is a better place without you. Let's recap. In the late 1930s, the NKVD was still purging people, but was increasingly focused on perceived external threats from Finland and the real threats from Germany, as well as threats in the Far East regions. 
The Soviet Union moved to capture more territory at its margins in Finland, uh, in the Baltics, Manchuria, and the Pacific. Captured territory saw mass deportations by the NKVD. Many Chinese and Koreans were transported via train to their to uh, new homes near uh, or from their homes near Vladivostok to the Kazakh or Uzbek SSR. Beria was a massive piece of shit. He succeeded Yezhov as NKVD chief. He had a long career in Soviet intelligence before making the top job, and he was also a pedophile and a full-on rapist. The NKVD fielded their own troops during the Second World War, mostly in Europe and to a lesser extent in the Far East. Ricard Sorge, uh, one of the Soviet's best spies, repeatedly informed the Kremlin about Hitler's plan to attack the Soviet Union. Despite uh, other intelligence that corroborated Sergei's findings, it appears little to no preparation was made for war. The NKVD split uh, into the NKVD and the NKGB in 1943, then rebranded to the MVD and the MGB in the 1946. These agencies were instrumental in providing information to Soviet physicists to help accelerate the construction of the Soviet Union's first atomic bomb, RDS-1. Stalin's death may not be as it appeared. Officially, he died of a cerebral hemorrhage, but theories persist that he was killed by various conspirators. The film, The Death of Stalin, seems to have been completely missed as satire in Russia. The film is banned in Russia as Western propaganda, that's probably not going to change anytime soon. They banned, they also banned the uh, HBO uh, series Chernobyl as well. Some new information. Um, the podcast Real Dictators recently did a deep dive on Vladimir Lenin, which I recommend checking out. Um, no, Noiser is not a sponsor, but that series did point out something about Lenin that I missed. Lenin apparently had a love triangle with his wife, um, Nadezhda Krupskaya, and a Russian-French Communist Party member named Anissa Armand. Apparently, the three maintained some kind of relationship until Lenin and his wife parted ways with Anissa on good terms. To that I say, come on Anissa, why have the whole pig when all you want is a little sausage? I missed this information in research for episode 3, and only heard about it a couple months ago and I wanted to share it with you guys. So before we wrap up, we have a couple of things that I want to address. Um, the first thing is we need to talk about how I messed up last episode. When I was describing Trotsky's assassination, I thought I knew. I thought I knew enough about this event that I didn't need to look anything up. I assumed and made an ass out of me and myself. I confidently profess to you all that Trotsky was murdered with an ice pick. One of my uh, agent followers on Twitter added me and said one word. This one word pierced me like the real thing that pierced Trotsky's skull. Once I read this dreaded correction, I sank in my chair with the full weight of guilt like an anchor claws at the seabed. For I, dear agents, fucked up. That word was Ice Axe. I guess that's two words, but emphasis on axe. I looked this up in shame, and yes, twas not an ice pick, twas an ice axe that ventured into Trotsky's thoughts. And there's a significant um, 
distinction here, apparently. An ice axe is used by mountaineers for either uh, ascent or descent as a multi-purpose tool, including being used as a walking stick. An ice pick is a small device with some kind of handle and a long metal spike used to uh, clear ice. It looks like a screwdriver if screwdrivers were more aggressive than they than they are naturally in the wild. So next time, agents, when I get excited while writing and I think I know something, I'm going to stop, drop, and Google search. I'm lucky it was just one little tweet and not a flock of angry hawks coming to tear my content in new Soviet Socialist Republic. Up next, some constructive Criticism from an anonymous Swedish agent. He writes, Very interesting podcast, but some hopefully constructive criticism. Please be more conservative with some of the sound effects, specifically the shooting slash scream sound in the last episode. First and foremost, it's too loud, and secondly, it doesn't add. Rather, it was um, irritating that I lost my uh, concentration on the material and had to rewind, only to suffer the ridiculous effect again, which happened multiple times. I like the style of podcasts like this to to be more uh, heavy to match the heavy subject, but of course, maybe that's just me. Some gloomy ambient music, of course, can be cool, though. Anyway, impressive job, and um, I have been wanting to learn more about the history of Soviet Russia, so we'll continue listening. Greetings from Sweden, and have a great rest of the week. And greetings to you from Minnesota. Man, I wish more people would write in with constructive criticism. I definitely want to know what I'm doing well and uh, what is not working so well. So first of all, thank you for the message. Yeah, the, um, the shooting scream sound, I apologize if it did irritate, bother, or shock somebody at a bad time. I, I do think about people like listening to the show in their cars, and I'd hate to make somebody jump and get into a wreck. So I feel that sense of responsibility there. Detracting from the content itself with a sound effect to me is not good. Honestly, I just find the shot scream funny uh, because it's so dark or dark humored. I'm probably the only person that actually finds it funny. And it was in the last episode so many times because I wanted to punctuate the deaths of Stalin's close rivals. Unfortunately, there were a lot of them, but I completely agree that one casualty of the shot scream should not be the content. I'm also still like a big novice when it comes to mixing my show, so Going forward, I will be sure to keep the shot scream at a lower volume and use it sparingly. Now, that being said, the creepy music played in the background, I'll do better at mixing the music as well. But, you know, the music shouldn't be overpowering the voice driving the content. And, and also on that note, too, I recently listened through episode four and found some other errors uh, in volume of um, some of the sound effects. So in the interest of transparency, I'll hopefully be re-editing episode four during my winter break and republishing. That will be a sound quality edit only. No content is being changed. I, I wouldn't... I'm... I have a personal rule that I'm not changing any content once it is released. The script stays the same. 
But anyway, you're right. You're right. And some of the sounds need to be tweaked. I do plan to return to part four, like I said, there to resolve some of the mixing issues, but the information will stay the same. I'm just repeating myself at that point, at this point. As far as heavy subject matter matching the heaviness of the show, I, I like to keep things as light as possible when and when appropriate with dark humor and um, seriousness when appropriate. And I think that's necessary with a show like this. As you have probably guessed, if you've been listening thus far, I don't read very nice things late at night before bed, because this is like, late at night is kind of the only time I have to do any sort of research. And honestly, the research for the show has been pretty gruesome, uh, just in terms of the stuff that's the stuff that I have to read. So we might have uh, we might have talked about this in episode one, but uh, secret policing is dirty, awful, and dehumanizing business. This could be a this could be a super depressing show, but I don't want it to be heavy all the time. I want to bring people in, bring the history to life, hopefully, and uh, cycle through what is serious and what can be made fun of. I want people to come away from listening having gone through a series of emotions, smiling, hopefully laughing at my attempt at humor with some of this uh, material, and of course feeling sorrow sorrow, and, and, and the sting of knowing what common people have suffered at the hands of their governments for centuries. I hope this is a dynamic experience and with how successful it's unexpectedly Ben, I'm here to host and treat the information and emotions you're receiving and feeling with the utmost respect and call myself out when I fall short or when I fall short. Kind of sounded like I sang there for a second. Um, one more thing and then we'll wrap it up. I saw a huge surge in my download numbers for this show, which is so much appreciated. Thank you all for turning in and choosing to listen to my goofy voice. I want to give a shout out to New York, really driving those numbers in the United States. Looking at all you American agents there listening. Thank you. Um, globally, my British agents, this is terrible, my British agents coming in clutch. Thank you. French agents also getting in on this show. Thank you. Uh, hopefully, you guys will stick around when I cover Maximilien Robespierre's Committee on Public Safety. Somebody discovered this show all the way in Seychelles. A hello from Minnesota. Weird to think that my voice is being heard in, in a place I've never been and likely will never go to. Not because Seychelles is uh, not beautiful. Gosh, I, I would love to go to Seychelles. Um, I appreciate all you agents finding my show, sharing it, giving those ratings. It really, really does help me, and it really helps others find the show. Now, I will be taking a break for a couple weeks for finals and some personal stuff that I have to attend to. But then we'll be off to the races to pick back up with episode six. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this one. If you did, please rate and review Secret Police wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends, tell your special someone, tell your in-laws, write your representative and tell them about the show. Follow me on Twitter at hush underscore popo or Instagram at secret police podcasts. 
agents. Dismissed. For glory to me and you, and glory to Stolly Poo, for motherland and Uncle Joe.